ecosystems are our elders. There will always um, be the guide for how we should navigate our journey. From UW Tacoma, this is Pod Defiance. Welcome to Pod Defiance, where we don't lecture, but we do educate. I'm Eric Wilson Edge. Today on the pod, a conversation with UW Tacoma Associate Professor Michelle Montgomery. We'll talk about a new book Montgomery edited. The book, Re-Indigenizing Ecological Consciousness and the Interconnectedness to Indigenous Identities, is a collection of articles written by Indigenous scholars. The authors examine the relationship between humans and nature. We'll talk about the book and the process of putting it together. We'll also talk about what it means to decolonize education. Finally, Montgomery talks about her work with UW Tacoma's Muckleshoot EDD cohort. The inaugural cohort is only months away from earning their doctoral degrees. Michelle Montgomery, welcome to Pod Defiance. It's good to have you here. Hello, for having me. I'm excited to join you. Um, so we are here to talk about uh, this new book that is out that you are the editor of. Um, but before we get to the role of an editor and the process of putting this together, there are some concepts that are um, uh, talked about multiple times in this book and including in the the essay that that you have in here. So I want to start with some of those ideas first. Um, one of these uh, concepts is traditional ecological knowledge. Um, now, I'm wondering if, you could, if we could take a few minutes just to talk about that concept and what it means. Sure, I'd be happy to express that. Um, first, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional territories uh, in which the lands we work in play. Um, I in particular want to acknowledge the Puyallup and the Muckleshoot Nations and the Salish Coastals peoples. You know, traditional ecological knowledge um, is, is very identity focused. It's it's based on place based knowledges, you know, and I, there's a misconception that traditional ecological knowledge is indigenous knowledges. Indigenous knowledges are plural. Traditional ecological knowledge is just a facet of it. Um, but my perspective, and I cannot speak for all indigenous nations or peoples, I can only speak from my experience as a southerner um, being from the southeast. It is our lived experiences is our lived experiences to place, um, is those cultural and traditional connections to place, is those teachings, um, that in which we receive from our elders and our more than human relationships. So traditional ecological knowledge also teaches us that we have an inherent responsibility with knowledge. Knowledge is only important in the ways in which we share it. The shared knowledge of traditional ecological knowledge shows that there's a respect and reciprocity that we care for our more than human relationships, which are the ecosystems. Um, and, and from a Western context, from an indigenous perspective, from my lens, these are our elders. Ecosystems are our elders. There will always um, be the guide for how we should navigate our journey. You know, um, I'm always asked um, as a reminder from many elders. To, to be humble, to be humble of the gifts around you. So traditional ecological knowledge also reminds us that humans are also one of the most fragile entities in that ecosystem. And so we have to care for them as an elder. The, the ecological systems also provide the knowledge that we need. You know, it, it provides everything that we need from spirituality, wellness, 
um, as we grow older, as we navigate our ages, you know, as we choose different journeys in life. And so the traditional ecological knowledge teaches us that there's ways in which we have to connect ourselves as human beings in these particular places to um, respect and care for our elders. And it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And that's another misunderstanding. That traditional ecological knowledge um, is a one-size-fits-all approach throughout all Indigenous communities. You know, so we have over 800 representations in the United States. That's not including Canada, right, or any other places around the world. And so there may be synergies, but that doesn't mean that there's a one-size-fits-all approach. But traditional ecological knowledge in some to me is remembering the teachings of our more than human relatives. Remember the respect. Remember to be humble and graceful because they're the reasons why we have our spirituality, our health and our wellness. When we actually pay close attention to what those teachings are sharing with us daily and the teachings that our elders also share with us. I wonder if we could spend a little bit more time talking about place based knowledge and water-based knowledge? So place-based, um, and it, my Southern accent uh, comes out every now and then. I'm a North Carolinian. So my place-based knowledge would be, you know, remembering bare feet, toes in red clay or sandy, loamy soil, smelling tobacco being cured on our family farm, um, remembering the purposes of corn pollen, when we're actually gathering, remembering the seasons, remembering the moons, um, you know, remembering the dogwood, all these different things happen based on our environment. So place-based knowledge is also connected to Western knowledge, say, our plant relatives, you know, plant species, our tree relatives, and they're different geographically. And I identify with those. So I identify with the pine trees, identify with all the things that are directly connected to a Southeastern territory. And those are my lived experiences. Now that I'm a visitor in the Pacific Northwest, I have a, a million times full responsibility to be a respectful visitor. So I have a huge responsibility to acknowledge the teachings of the land. And so when you think of the cedar, when you think of the Salish Sea, when you think of all the different um more than human relatives that are in these geographical spaces, they're definitely connected to a lived experience culturally and traditionally, right? Um, we know that cedar is also a medicine. We know that cedar is also used as a resource. It's a tool, right? Um, our place-based knowledges are also tools, tools in which how we navigate geographical spaces. So we wouldn't have a salmon ceremony, particularly where I'm from, because that is a unique ceremony that takes place in the Salish Coastals communities um, and other inland communities here in the Pacific Northwest. And so our lived experiences really dictate how we navigate the ways in which we move around in our journey and our knowledges. Um, as a Southerner, there's just certain protocols that you do as a Southerner. Um, and as a Pacific Northwesterner, there's certain protocols that happen. And so being a Southerner or North Carolinian, that's my identity. That's who I come from. Those are my relations. Those are where my elders are from. Um, and so now being in the Pacific Northwest, I bring all of that with me. And my grandfather has always reminded me, always put your best foot forward because you're representing us. You're representing your ancestors. You're representing the places in which you were reared, where you grew up. Um, and so that's what I mean by place-based knowledges and identities. I now identify as a 
you know, as a person who is caretaking and respecting the teachings of the Pacific Northwest, which is why I'm so passionate about climate justice, because it's all connected. Um, land is connected to the water and water is connected to the land, to the land There, you know, there's a duality. You can't think about one without the other. Um, and so it's important to think about the health of both. And so lived experiences in place-based knowledge just teaches us that, you know, our health is directly related to the land and the water. So in, in your thinking, what is the relationship between um, indigenous knowledge and traditional ways of knowing and what has come to be thought of as Western knowledge or Western science? First, I would like to acknowledge that, you know, my humility and grace in my journey in life, I'm on a spiritual journey. Um, it, it's all knowledges are important. And it goes back to what I said previously. It's it's how you use your knowledges that makes them, you know, for the well-being of our more than human relationships. Western knowledge, in my opinion, is quite young. It's only a couple of hundred years old. Indigenous knowledges have been around for thousands upon thousands of years. Um, and, and so who should be at the table is what we should always ask. What does justice demand when we talk about place-based knowledges and traditional ecological knowledge? Who's at the table? Who's not at the table? Who's missing, right? Um, and a lot of times those indigenous voices, those knowledges are added after the fact. Now we fast forward to where we are. We've come out of a pandemic. Um, we've seen drastic amounts of weather changes. Um, and, and I'm noticing that there are scientists who are invested in Western ecological science are really invested into knowing more about indigenous knowledges, plural, because there's that lived experience, generational lived experiences of place. When I think about climate change, many of you can speak to many elders in different communities for years, even before Al Gore won the Nobel prize for his video, there were elders way up north that said the earth axis has shifted. The snow is changing. There was a pulse that was missed, and that was the, the elders saying something's happening, right? And you fast forward to um, an elder, Sheila Wakultier. She wrote a book about the right to be cold. She was right along with Al Gore in this conversation, but somehow she was erased from the acknowledgement, but she's been acknowledged now. You know, it, it's those teachings that are so important, right? And we've been shared these teachings for years. This is nothing new. It goes back to that humility and grace of we have to be respectful to our more than human relatives. They will show us. And they, and that's exactly what's happening, right? Mother Earth has gone through drastic changes and us human beings have to be very respectful and mindful that we, we're very fragile. And if we don't, we haven't noticed that from the heart freezes, from the waters. We've had all types of mudslides happening on the Pacific Northwest, um, Northeast, Midwest, massive amounts of ice, Southeast, massive amounts of erosion from hurricanes. Um, and then we have Pacific, Pacific Islander communities that are really dealing with sea, sea rise, right? So how do we have these real conversations? We have these real conversations by having, you know, different voices at the table. 
And I agree um, that that's difficult, but we have to dive into ways into having difficult conversations. Um, and, and that means lots of voices, not the status quo, you know, institutionalized. We own the data. This is what the data says. But people are really discovering that many of the things that our indigenous elders, our leaders have been sharing with us is dictating exactly what the science says, the Western science. And, you know, I, I would say that, you know, I'm part of teams where there's folks that are invested in Western science and folks that are very invested in their traditional identities and knowledges. And it's it's unique to see these folks come together to create long-term solutions, not fixes, long-term solutions. And long-term solutions doesn't mean it's going to be a solution. It means that you're consistently working on what's happening around you on a day-to-day basis. Um, look at what happened in across the border and hope British Columbia, like the Fraser river is like exploding and created massive amounts of flooding. And so the river wants to return to its original state. Those converse, there's lots of traditional conversations about that, you know? Um, and so it's important for us to continue to have clear communication, transparent communication. And I'm, I'm not sure that um, a lot of people understand what communication means, right? I, I think some people have one way of communicating and other people have another way of communicating. But I have hope um, because you're seeing more and more uh, multi-generational conversations happening. And that's the key. So, um you you should always have multi-generational conversations because we're leaving our youth with a huge amount of responsibility. Um, and then the more we share with our youth and our future leaders that all knowledges have a place to help with solutions, then that's how we kind of can work together and find like-minded synergies. And I, I just want to say, I am not one of those persons where I'm trying to overlap indigenous knowledges with West, Western knowledges. I, they're very equitable. One is, you know, and the issue that has happened in academia is that indigenous knowledges have often been viewed as an inferior knowledge, that it can't be tested. It doesn't have solutions. Um, And you fast forward to 2023 and you have massive amounts of people, you know, wanting to learn more about these place-based knowledges, the historical context of the place-based knowledges. Let's dive into um, the process of putting this book together. There are a lot of really um, great pieces in here from different um, uh, writers, scholars. So one of the things I'm curious um, is you are you are the editor of this volume. You also have a a, a piece in here as well. But uh, forgive my ignorance. I don't I don't know what an editor does with in this. M- this kind of book where there's a lot of different voices um, and a lot of different material. So what, what was your role as the editor in, in putting this together? You know, one, this is a blessing to publish with so many different relatives and it's a multi-generational edited book for sure. Um, and what I wanted to do is decolonize the narrative that so many times that when you think of publishing peer reviewed journals, um, and this is a peer reviewed edited book as well, often indigenous voices are left out because as you mentioned previously, that 
you know, there's a particular type of science or a particular type of narrative or research that they want published. And, and I wanted to decolonize the ways in which we are included in the conversation. And in a contemporary times, it's publishing, right? Um, as an editor, it was reaching out and thinking about who are the people who I feel have something so powerful to share? How do I uplift people? Um, the culture teachings is it's not about I me my it's we, and so this project is about how do the how do I continue to uplift indigenous peoples and indigenous voices. So as an editor, it's a huge responsibility. Um, you're collecting, you know, chapters. You're also part of making sure it's edited, it's fine tuned, edited for publishing, um, and it's very time consuming. But it's also very rewarding. Um, and it's, it's also, you know, you have to strategically decide, you know, what chapters need to be placed in what order, um, whose voices you want to uplift in this volume and then, you know, uplift other folks in other volumes. And, and so it's very time consuming, but it was worth it. I, I just, I really wish in my academic journey that I had this opportunity. And doing this, I sat down one day and I said, you know, how do I change this kind of publishing, gatekeeping um, culture that happens in institutions in regards to knowledges? And this was one way I felt that I could decolonize it, always bring people with me, always. Let's talk about uh, the process of, I mean, sort of the idea where this book came from. You you have hosted um, and organized uh, an Indigenous speaker series for a long time, years now. It feels years. I, I don't know how long, but it's been a long time. So was that, was this book um, and the idea born out of that series? Um, yeah. it's sort of like a continuation of this. So let's talk more about that, that end of the book. Okay. So I started in two, when I first came to UWT, I mean, <laughs> you're right. It was Indigenous Knowledge and Community Conversations. And then it was revised title to um, the Indigenous Speaker Series, because it's just not a speaker series. It's also a platform that also provides many grant opportunities um, within tribal communities, exclusively focusing on tribal colleges and universities. Um, and this, it, you know, the more and more we hear our voices in these platforms, um, it, it creates a sense of empowerment. So, for example, before I, I was hired um, at UW Tacoma as one of two first indigenous faculty, there weren't a lot of classes, if any, that focused on indigenous scholars. So as I'm teaching on campus um, and as I'm inviting presenters, I kept saying to myself, there's more, there's more to this, there's more to this. Um, and I wanted to, to, for kids, particularly in my community and other communities to be able to say, there are indigenous scholars that I can pick up and read. So I remember very clearly when I was in K through 12, going into the library, that was not the case. Even in my undergraduate degree and other graduate degrees, you know, as I aged and um, went into other programs, it, it became more visible. So I want to prevent erasure. You know, we, we've had a lot of heartbreak from the pandemic. We've lost so many elders in our communities. We've had a lot of heartbreak um, with missing and murdered Indigenous women. We've had a lot of heartbreak resurfacing about residential and boarding schools. 
So we we need empowering. And it, it's not that, um, you know, that we're always in this state of despair, but it's important for the world to see that we have so much to share. And often indigenous peoples are spoken about in past tense. We're written about in past tense. It's almost like we're in a curated museum and, and you know, there used to be these voices. And part of the project and the indigenous speaker series is saying, nope, we're still here, you know, and this is what we have to say. And it, and a lot of people think the word decolonizing and indigenizing is if we're trying to revert back to, you know, the 1400s. But it's not. It's We live in a contemporary world, and it's important for our voices to be known in a contemporary society, while at the same time, we're very culturally and traditionally in tune to who we are. So uh, a number of the authors talk about decolonizing the classroom and also indigenizing education. And I know these are things that that you work on here at UW-Tacoma. So I wonder if we could talk about those concepts in relation to your work with the Muckleshoot cohort within the EDD program here, and also just with other courses you teach here at UW-Tacoma? I'm a forever student. So I, I'm, as you know, Eric, through the years, I, I don't like to be front and center. I kind of stay off the radar. Um, and I want to acknowledge the Muckleshoot people, the Muckleshoot tribe, the Muckleshoot Tribal College, the Muckleshoot Higher Education Program. And the Muckleshoot tribe, is the real reason why this program became into fruition, the Indigenous Doctoral Cohort with UW-Tacoma School of Education. Um, for, for years, Muckleshoot community, the, the, the tribe and higher education department has been interested in figuring, trying to bridge a pathway to UW-Tacoma because it's, it's centralized within their community. Um, and the program came into fruition um, and I was just asked to continue to be a part of that because I have a long-standing extended family relationship with the Muckleshoot community. Um, they've always treated me as family. And to have a community that has experienced so much historical trauma, as we all has, dealing with the institutes of academia, I'm, I'm not saying particularly that UW-Tacoma has created trauma for them, but there's a lot of history when you think about residential boarding schools. And when you look at how um, the communities of the Puyallup Nation and the Muckleshoot tribe are cut, are cut into this urban setting, right? And how the demographics of the land has changed. Um, decolonizing education to me is really bringing in those indigenous scholars. Like during my doctoral um, studies, I didn't have this indigenous cohort We're with indigenous scholars, with indigenous faculty. And it places a different type of heartbeat to why you do what you do and why you're so interested in finishing a doctoral program. Um, decolonizing education to me is, is also remembering, um, you know, I've had, my aunts told me stories of applying to UNC Chapel Hill and other universities in the South. And it, this was during when things were supposed to be integrated and they were responded that they'd met their colored quota um, and those things still happen. And so to me, decolonizing education is really placing ourselves front and center, um, that we're not of the past, right? Our knowledges are important. And it's also important for us to view education as a healing process. 
And so to be a part of this indigenous cohort with Dr. Robin Minthorn, she is also one of the champions for this cohort. Um, It's healing because in all of my degrees, I've never had this type of, it's a culture environment. There's so much energy. It's multi-generational and we should all feel safe in learning. Always feel safe. And we should always feel that in a classroom setting, we can see ourselves in the material in which we're learning. And it's not a form of erasure when you walk into a classroom and you don't see voices of indigenous people, right? There, there should always be that anyone, you know, particularly marginalized peoples, your, your voice and face should be familiar in what you're learning. So what does that mean to you that, you know, you've been involved with building the Muckleshoot cohort? Um, what does that mean to you that just in a few short months, um, a number of students are going to be graduating um, with their doctoral degrees? It means to me that I've done my grandpa proud. Right. He always said, never forget where you come from. And that's just not being a North Carolinian. It is you know, the suffrages of indigenous peoples. Never forget where we've come from. Like, you know, when you think of genocide, it came in different forms, right? And so this to me is revitalization of leadership of indigenous knowledges. The cohort is so special because we have two elders in our cohort. And then there's, we have young mothers and we have other folks who are also allies and it, it it makes a strong statement and, and not to genderize it, but it's a cohort of all women. And, you know, in, in many instances in, in my path in academia, that was never the case, you know, um, particularly in the sciences. It was a, a, a very masculine dominated world. And so it's you you have uh Dr. Denise Beale, who's also a champion for this. And you know, she her her dad was one of the first persons to receive a PhD from UW Seattle. And so, wow, come in full circle. How powerful is that? And, and when you think about the resistance that you know the communities, the indigenous communities have faced in the South Puget Sound through the years. This is making a very strong statement. And it's a multi-tribal cohort, which is even more fabulous. Um, and so it just makes, it sets a very strong precedent for UW Tacoma, not just the School of Education. You know, it, it sets a very strong precedent for um, the surrounding communities of UW Tacoma. You know, because often... There's just so much, you know, we have land acknowledgements now, which, which I under, you know, which is great. People are acknowledging, you know, atrocities of genocide, but I, I really don't believe that people understand what a true land acknowledgement is. Um, this program also represents that. Um, and, and it's just, it's, it's such a powerful, powerful experience. There is also a master's program. Um, that is being developed and growing. But the indigenous doctoral cohort, I tell them all the time, this is a unique cohort because no one, they stuck it out through a pandemic where everyone was dealing with loss. I mean, how powerful that is, is that you have this resistant cohort 
that, you know, that just kept it moving through the pandemic. And now they're reaching their end goals, but not the end of their journey, but the end goal to complete the degree. So it, it makes a, a very, very, very strong statement. I would like to add, you know, the work that I do would not have been possible without mentors. Um, I'm very grateful to the Bay and Paul Foundation for supporting the Indigenous Speaker Series platform, which help, helps with the editorial work, the editorial process of making sure this is fine published. Um, I'd like to also acknowledge the Office of Community um, Partnerships at UW Tacoma, um, UW Population Health, um, UW Earth Lab, Rising Voices, NOAA, Cure, um, and the Climate Land Leaders. There's just so many people who have been viewers of the Indigenous Speaker Series that are just huge champions, and they're super excited. I would like also like to add that there's two more edited volumes that are coming out, one through the University Press of Colorado, and it's Voices of Indigenuity, which again will pull um, authors from the Indigenous Speaker Series. And the third book is from the same publisher as the first. And the title of that edited volume is Indigenous Women's Knowledges. And those all will be out in September. The music you're hearing is by UW Tacoma Associate Teaching Professor Nicole Blair. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. You will find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Pocket Casts.